Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. What I'd like you to do is open up your Bibles to the seventh chapter of Proverbs. Seventh chapter of Proverbs. And let me begin with this. On the first day of college, the dean had the student body gathered and he was going over rules of the institution. And he said that there is a boy's dorm and a girl's dorm. And they are Gender-sensitive dorms, the boys or the men, you cannot be in the girls' dorm, and ladies, you cannot be in the men's dorm. And to enforce that rule, if anyone is caught being in the dorm that they should not be in, the first offense is a $30 fine. If we catch you a second time, the second offense is a $60 fine. If we catch you a third time... That doubles, $120 fine. Any questions? And one young man in the crowd spoke up and he said, how much for a season pass? (laughs) (laughs) That's a jovial way to set up the topic for this morning. What I want to talk to you about this morning and next week are what I'm calling the in-sins. The in-sins. I want to talk to you about the misuse of sex this morning and the misuse of money next Sunday. Misuse of sex and misuse of money. There is, for the topic this morning... There is really no need to set up the problem. We know the problem. I'll just make a brief statement about it. Culturally speaking, sexual sin has gone from private and moved to public and went from public transformed into popular and emerged from popular into prolific and exploded from prolific into pandemic. And this is true in the church. This is true with the leaders of churches and those that stand behind pulpits in churches. It is a pandemic problem. And what we have in the 5th, 6th, and 7th chapter of Romans is we have some, from this book of wisdom, we have some sage advice. Some sage advice related to sexual sin and warnings and admonitions and teachings about how we can Fight the temptation to live a pure life. 
And so I want us this morning to look into the seventh chapter of Proverbs. And what Solomon does here is he personifies the issue. He personifies this idea of sexual sin and he paints a picture of a wayward woman. Now I just want to, from the get-go here, I want to say this. It's not Solomon saying that women are the problem. It's not to draw undue attention to the female gender. It is an illustration using a personality or a persona so that it becomes real and vivid, so that we see the reality of what we're talking about, taking it out of theory and principle and putting it into the form of a person. That's the purpose for the illustration. So we're going to look and listen and hopefully heed what Solomon in his wisdom says to us. The path of sexual desire is a slippery slope. And we're going to talk about how that takes place as we look into this example. But this is not just about sexual sin. The principles that we're going to see here are principles that are true of sins across the board, whatever your vice is. The same principles that we're going to draw out of the seventh chapter of Proverbs can be applied to a wide variety of temptations. So this is not an opportunity for you to check out if sexual temptation is not a vice that you struggle regularly with. We're humans. We fight battles with temptation. Let's look and get some principles that will help us win the war. First of all, the setup. The setup. We're going to begin in verses 6 and 7. Here's the setup. Solomon writing, listen to what he says. At the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice. And I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. Here is Solomon the wise looking out through his window, witnessing a fool. How did he know that this young man lacked sense? That this young man was a fool? He's going to tell us in the next two verses, seven, I mean eight and nine of chapter seven. This young man, he writes, was passing along the street near her corner referring to the wayward woman, this personification of sexual sin, that this young man was passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. 
He was passing along. That phrase in the NIV is rendered, he was going down. He was going down. So here's this young man going down this road and Solomon is using him as a warning for you and I. So the question is, which way are you going? Where are you passing along? Let me draw three problems that we see, or I should say that Solomon showed us related to this young man who lacked wisdom or sense. Three problems. Here is the first problem. He had a location problem. He had a location problem. Listen again. Verse 8, the first half of the verse. He was passing along the street near her corner. If you write in your Bibles, I would circle that word near. He was passing along the street near her corner. He placed himself in proximity to an incredible temptation. He was passing along near the corner of the temptress. His own two feet carried him across the street, down the street, into the location of the temptress. That's the point that Solomon is making Ladies and gentlemen, it is the wise that stay in a safe location. It's fools that enter the enemy's turf. It doesn't, guys, it doesn't make you and me more of a tough Christian that we throw ourselves intentionally into the face of temptation. That's foolishness. It's foolishness. God doesn't want us to do that so that we can show our willpower. He's very aware of our hearts and our brokenness. Wisdom stays at a safe distance. But this young man, he had a location problem. It's true, certainly related to sexual sin, that one of the common problems with many followers of Christ, and that is inside the church, outside the church, in leadership in the church, that one of the problems, let me just rephrase that, let me, let me just rephrase that. One of the problems, so that you can make it personal to you, one of the problems that I struggle with is that I don't want to sin, but I like to be around its possibilities. Right? There is the lure of being in proximity even if I really don't want to participate. There is that sinful human heart that wants the proximity, wants to be around so it hits the senses. Like, you know what I'm talking about here? The aroma. Just walk into Harvest Bread Company. And you're as good as dead right there. Right? You understand what I'm saying? It hits the senses. It is attractive. It is pleasing. 
So the question here is, how's your location? How's your location? We can have a good support of Christian friends. We can have prayer warriors that pray for us. But if we put ourselves in proximity to the temptations that we struggle with, then we are like this young man that lacked sense, stepping on a slippery slope that we have no traction on and we begin to gain momentum down. What's your location? You see, I think first and foremost, this young man doesn't have a will problem. He has a wisdom problem. He has a wisdom problem. He's in the wrong location. He is putting himself in proximity. I think that is the warning that Solomon is giving to us. You see, at times our biggest problem is a matter of location. Location to the temptation. When we fall into sin, we kick ourselves because we fell thinking that the fall was the problem, but really that's the byproduct or a symptom of the problem. The problem is we put ourselves where we shouldn't have been. We need to stay clear. We need to take the warning, heed the warning here. Whatever your temptation is, it applies across the board to sexual sin or to other sins. We need to be aware of a location problem. Brings us to the second problem. The second problem of this young man is a direction problem. It's a direction problem. Look at the second half of verse 8. He was taking the road to her house. Circle the word to He was taking a road that led to her house. Not only was he in the wrong location, he was going in the wrong direction. He was going in the wrong direction. Listen, step one is always a setup to step two, always. The wrong location is a setup to the wrong direction. You see, it's like a magnet. Sin is not satisfied. It's not satiated. It's unsatiable. It's never appeased with where it's at. It always wants more. Ladies and gentlemen, there's such a radical principle here. I mean a absolute fundamental principle to my spiritual life and my either failure or victory in the temptations that come against me to your failure or victory in the temptations that come against you and continually beat on the door. And the issue is direction. It's direction. Which direction are you heading? Just think about it in the physical realm. 
Direction is about which way you're facing. Direction is about which way your momentum is going. Direction is about which way you're leaning. I am convinced that God is more concerned with my direction than my location. He's more concerned with which way am I moving than how far I have come in the Christian life. What He wants and where the place of victory is, is face toward Him, back toward sin. Momentum toward Him, away from sin. Leaning toward Him, leaning away from sin, direction. And this young man that was a fool, that lacked sense, was not only where he shouldn't be, he was going where he shouldn't go. He had a location problem and a direction problem. I mean... This principle is so obvious to us in the physical realm, right? Our direction determines our destination, right? Isn't that true? Your direction determines your destination. It's just as true spiritually. Your direction determines your destination. I'm not talking here about heaven and hell. I'm talking about your movement toward a holy life or your failure in falling and being tripped up by sin and its temptations. This young man had a third problem. He not only had a location problem and he not only had a direction problem, he had a perception problem. Look at verse 9. In the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. In the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. He had a perception problem. You see, this young man found himself in the wrong location, moving the wrong direction, and all of a sudden, darkness fell around him. And when darkness fell around him, and when darkness falls around us, we can't perceive like we need to perceive. We can't see what we need to see. We become vulnerable where we aren't vulnerable in the light. And in the wrong location, moving in the wrong direction, takes us to a place where spiritually night falls. And then we have this perception problem. Then we can't see as we need to. Perceive and understand what we need to perceive and understand. And we become more vulnerable to the enemy and his temptations. You see, when we get to where this young man 
is found in verse 9. We're in a really precarious situation. When we get to a perception problem, here's why. How can we be convinced of the problem when we're blind to it? Does that make sense? When you're blind, you can't see what you so desperately need to see. When darkness falls in, you're unaware. And it just feeds on itself. So that's the setup. That's the setup to the story. To the warning. And in that setup, we've already looked at some really critical truths toward defeating Temptation, that's just in the setup. Now let's look at the seductress. This young fool has set the stage and listen, right on cue, here she comes. Verse 10, And behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. Here's the first truth about her about temptation in general, about sin, she is prepared. She's prepared. Do you see that? This is not a coincidence here. They just kind of bumped into each other. He got in the wrong location and was heading in the wrong direction and night fell. And when that happened, sin was ready. The temptation was prepared ready to capitalize on the vulnerability of that young man. That's not a coincidence. The enemy has been doing what he does very well for a very long time. She was prepared and he was not. Secondly, not only is she prepared, she's aggressive. Look at Verse 11 and the first part of verse 12. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market. Do you see the picture that Solomon is painting here? This is not someone that is waiting. She is working. This is not someone that hopes that something will happen. This is someone that is out to make something happen. She is aggressive. She's on an agenda. I can tell you that that is the way the enemy works with all of our temptations. We get in the wrong place, going the wrong direction And night falls and we lose our perception. He's ready. He's ready. And he will strike at the moment of opportunity. As a matter of fact, this verse just came to my mind after Jesus defeated Satan in the desert in the fourth chapter of Matthew in the duel in the desert right before his ministry began, his public ministry began at the end of that temptation when Jesus said, depart from me. It said that Satan left him for an opportune time. 
for an opportune, he's always looking for an opportune moment. And an opportune moment for him is when we get in the wrong location, go in the wrong direction, and we lose our perception. And he's ready. He's ready. And he's aggressive. Third thing, verse 12b, at every corner she lies in wait. At every corner she lies in wait. Here's the third thing. She is prolific. She's prolific. She is abundant. She's readily available. Sounds like Solomon was looking from his generation into our generation, doesn't it? Particularly in this area of sexual sin and the opportunity, the prolific nature of that today. She's at the water cooler at work and she's sitting there on the desk and the computer screen and she's sitting there on the TV in the home and she's prolific. So prolific that she has cast a worldwide web. She's prolific. Number four, she's accepted. Look at verse 13 and 14. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices and today I have paid my vows. Wow. Do you see the brazen nature here of this wayward woman? She is referring to meeting her religious or spiritual obligations here. She wouldn't be so brazen. I'm talking about today now. She wouldn't be so brazen if we were not so desensitized to her presence. I think she's painting a pretense here of spirituality. She is to the culture looking like she is. Okay, her ways are accepted. Her practices are embraced. She dabbles in the religious and wades in sin. Just think about our culture there. I received an email this week from a friend that wanted me to just give some feedback related to an issue. You, I'm sure you've probably heard about it in the news. One of the major denominations in the world, the Christian denominations, and their decision to accept into ministry those who practice homosexuality. 
I just think about I'm not trying to I'm not trying to raise homosexuality higher than other sins. Let me just talk about that for a minute. What we have this tendency to do is that we have sins that we put up on the top of our list and then kind of a pecking order, don't we? Just think through this. Like sins against humanity, ethnic cleansing, molesting of children, right? Murder, first degree murder. And we have this pecking order that comes down. And as it comes down somewhere, there's adultery and stealing and goes down. And then there's gossip and criticism and coveting, right? And somewhere our life lines up with that list, meaning we don't have a struggle with these worst sins up here. We're somewhere, you know, kind of way down here and we might have some struggles with some of these things that are kind of toward the bottom of the list. You you get what I'm saying here. And here's what we do. Here's what we do. It's human nature. We look at these up here and we say, how could they do that? And we're quick to condemn and we look at these down here where we're at and we understand the struggle and we are quick to forgive. So we get this kind of grading scale. You want to know what I believe God would have us to do? I think He would have us to upraise all sin, not downgrade some, put them all up there. I'm not saying that there are not some sins that cause more destruction in the world than others. Clearly there are, but Sin in all of its forms is against the holiness of God and should be elevated. But just think about the illustration here that I gave regarding uh, this recent development and sent me a, his friend sent me a link that has a, just an extensive article, pages and pages uh, article written on a defense for that practice biblically. I mean, lots and lots of Scripture in an attempt to justify it biblically. I I just say that illustration to say this. It's accepted. Just like she's accepted. Just like she dabbles in here religion and wades in immorality. So we've looked at the setup. And we've looked at the seductress. Now let's look at the seduction. And here is where we can See how the hook of sin is set. The seduction of sin, whatever your vice is, it's attractive in the moment. First of all, it feeds the ego. It feeds the ego. Look at verse 15. Listen to this. 
She says, so now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I found you. Ah, you're the one. You're the one that I've wanted. I've come to meet you. You see how this is a pouring out into pride. It's a feeding of the ego. Sin wants to keep I at the center. S-I-N. Not only does the seduction feed the ego, it looks good. Look at verse 16. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egypt. It's beautiful. looked attractive. Number three, sin smells good. Verse 17, I have perfumed my bed with myrrh. Alloys and cinnamon. Next sin tastes good. Verse 18a. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Next sin feels good. 18b. Let us delight ourselves with love. And then, listen to what she says next. Sin appears safe. Verse 19 and 20, For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. I want to show you what just took place there in this seduction. Look at what it hit. First of all, it covered all five senses. Solomon, the wise man, is telling us something about sin and its nature and how the hook gets set. First of all, it hits the five senses. Secondly, it feeds a heart of pride. And ladies and gentlemen, I can tell you this with absolute certainty. Every human heart struggles with pride. And then number three, it threw in a false sense of security. That's the mind. It's going to be safe. It's going to be okay. So here we have the lure of the heart, all five senses, and the mind. Wow. That's incredible. And yet, We think, I think at times I can dance around it. I can hang my toes over the edge. I can walk on that slippery slope and think that I'm going to be okay. But in reality, when I do that or those who do that, We're like the young, foolish man. And then Solomon ends his solemn warning with the death that lurks in the shadows. The last section here is the slain. 
Look at Proverbs 17, 21 to 23. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. phrase that jumps out to me there, those three words, first part of verse 22, all at once. All at once. All at once he follows her. Do you see the progression here? The issue is not he's doing well, doing well, doing well, doing well, whoops, he goes off the deep end. The problem was he was in the wrong location going the wrong direction and then he lost his perception and he's standing there on a slippery slope with his toes hanging over the abyss and he can't see clearly and he loses his footing all at once. But the reason the all at once happened was all that went before the all at once. Again, I don't think, and whether or not it's true of this illustration or not, I believe it is, but true of us, we don't want the fall. We just get close and then, whoops, why did that happen? So we've looked at the setup and the seductress and the seduction and the slain. Now let me, as we close, look at the solution. Now we've already talked about a lot of truths and principles that help us toward the solution. But for this last section, what we're going to do now is jump back to the first five verses of the chapter, the setup for what we just read. Proverbs 7, 1 through 5. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your immediate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman and from the adulteress with her smooth words. A couple of things I want to point out there as a part of the solution. But let me give you a story it's really similar to this, biblically. One of my great heroes of the Old Testament. When I think of heroes in the Old Testament, just one man rises to the top immediately in my mind. And that's King David. And when I think of King David, here's what I think of. I think of a warrior, an ultimate warrior, a worshiper, par excellence and a leader. A warrior, 
a worshiper and a leader. Incredible man. A man that Scripture says was after God's own heart. But then we read the tragic story of a major fall in David's life. It had to do with sexual sin and even progressed to great deception and to outright murder. Yet here's a man after God's own heart. And here's the interesting precursor to his sin with Bathsheba. It says this in Scripture. When kings, at the time of year when kings went off to war, David was on the roof of his palace. In the time of year when kings go off to war, David was on the roof of his palace. David wasn't where David should be. David wasn't going in the direction David should go. David was on the roof of his palace and he hung ten over the edge of that palace and he looked down into the courtyard of Bathsheba bathing. And he lost his traction on that slippery slope and he crashed into a great fall. David, a man after the heart of God, David. Point is this. We cannot live on our past victories. It does not work in the Christian life. We cannot pursue God and be after God and then think we've arrived and then coast because when, we're, when we do that, we find that we're in the wrong location, going the wrong direction, and we lose our perception, and we do what we never, ever thought we would do. But Solomon says here to his son, David's grandson, keep my words, treasure up my commandments, and you'll live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Here's a point here. Getting victory over your vice and triumphing over your temptation. That's a point. We don't... I don't believe... Even when I'm failing, I don't believe I have to do that. I don't believe that I have to do that. Jesus is my example. He was tempted in every way, just as I am, yet was without sin. He entered into this human reality in every way, like I live it, like you live it. He walked with the same limitations that you and I have. Well, yeah, but he had the power of the Spirit of God. Well, you're a believer. If you're a believer, if I'm a believer, we have the access to the same power. Look at 2 Peter 1, 3-8. God's divine power has granted to us, all believers, all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things. How many, church, how many things? All things. 
through the knowledge of Him. Through what, church? The knowledge of God who called us into His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. Now listen to this. So that through them, through the very great and precious promises of God, that we can become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. The very power of God, the very resurrection power of Jesus Christ. That's the all things that have been given to me as a follower and to you. And that comes through a knowledge of God, not about God, but a knowledge of God. And where do you get your knowledge of God? You get it in His very great and excellent, precious promises. You see, it's the same thing that Solomon is saying here. Pay attention to the words, the words of God. Then look at verse 5. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, we have everything that we need to win. God has given it to us. He's not left us lacking anything. He's actually given us His very own nature. And the way that we access that is through our knowledge of Him that comes through His very great and precious promises is as we get into the Word of God and the Spirit of God works the Word of God into us, what happens is this. You've heard me say this many times. It's the Spirit of God that uses the Word of God and the child of God to make you like the Son of God for the glory of God. That's the process. Everything that we need. So the key is the knowledge of God and the process is applying the Word of God in our lives. That's why it says, make every effort to supplement faith with virtue, with this, with that, with this. It's this application of truth as we are pursuing God through His Word And what happens if we do that? They keep us from being ineffective and unfruitful if we are increasing. Verse 8, increasing. You see, there it is again, direction, direction. Let me just end with this. Think about how powerful the Word of God is. I'm going to take you all the way back to creation. The Word of God said, let there be light. And where there was darkness, came light. The Word of God said, let dry ground appear. And where there was void, there came shape and substance, form, boundaries, shorelines, mountains, valleys, void into shape. 
And God said, let the waters teem with living creatures and the air with birds and the land with creatures. Let them teem. You see what that is? It's where there is lifelessness, there came vibrant life. Lifelessness to vibrant life. And then finally, the Lord God formed the man out of clay. He shaped his body. Then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Here's what happened. Clay became the image of God. Clay became the image of God. In fact, The only part of God's creation that was so complicated that it required more than speaking or his breath was woman, right? He took the rib to make the woman. Guys, that was supposed to be a place for you to say amen. Now think back through that creation story about the power of the Word of God. That was the physical story. Think about it in the spiritual realm. Light into darkness. or I mean, darkness into light. God spoke into our darkness and called us into light. Through the Word of God, He did that. Then God spoke into the void and brought shape and boundaries. Spiritual shorelines and mountains and valleys. You see, He uses the Word to form and give substance and give direction and give boundaries and guidelines. That's the power of the Word of God. And then from lifelessness to teeming or vibrant life, it's the Word of God under the superintendence of the Spirit of God that brings life into us in increasing measure. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's a sense in which we become, I don't mean that we're not alive, but we become more alive in that we become more connected with the truth. We find out more and more about what life is really to be like through the Word of God, in the hands of the Spirit of God, in the child of God, making Him like the Son of God. Because the life of the Son is true life. His life is the essence and perfection of life. And then... Fourthly, the power of the Word of God from clay to the image of God. Prior to salvation, our nature was absolutely broken and marred and now through 
justification through regeneration and that salvation experience, what happens is we begin to be remade into the likeness of Christ, the image of Christ. How? Through the Word of God in the hands of the Spirit of God, in the child of God, to make us like the Son of God for the glory of God. See, it's right here. It's the Word. God's Word is so powerful. Closing sentence. It is in knowing God's Word that you know God's will and can walk in God's victory as you walk with God's Spirit. It's in knowing God's Word that you know God's will so that you can walk in God's victory as you walk with God's Spirit. Would you please stand? I just want to pray for us. Just pray a prayer of application of this truth. I don't know. Uh, I have a hard time understanding my own heart. I certainly don't know your heart, but I know that the Spirit of God is here and He knows what your need is. And if you want to bring that to Him, He's got all that you need. He's got all that you need. You want to come and be prayed for, you can certainly do that. We'll meet you here and pray over you. If you want to come over here to the altar on my right, if you want to just pray alone, you can go over there uh, to the altar on my left. And We'll certainly love to pray for you if you'd like to be prayed for. Father, just thank you. Thank you for truth. Again, thank you for your mercy that is new every morning. Thank you that we, for your children, we don't go beyond your grasp. You never leave us or forsake us. us, Lord, to access through the means of grace that you have given to us those all things that are ours as children of God made available through the person of Jesus so we can live the victory of Jesus in increasing measure. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.